This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 16th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The blue wave didn't happen this election, and polling voters was, again, a total mess. Pollsters at least predicted the outcome correctly, even though it could have easily gone the other way. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. We discussed the so-called shy Trump voter and what the aggregate election results can tell us about the mood of the electorate. This was a weird election. And uh, as we were we were talking before we started recording here in 2016 and 2020, uh, and you include Brexit, the polls were off in a consistent direction, and that should really tell us something. So, what does that tell us? Well, I think that these elections are more connected than some of us have realized. But I think what's important is to kind of take a step back and think about what did we expect to happen? So polls overall did tell us the right direction of the presidential election, that Biden was going to win. That was accurate. If we look at our friends at 538, that um, our poll aggregate aggregators and modelers you know, they accurately predicted most of kind of the general direction of where things went. But here was what was surprising. People thought it was going to be an early night, that Biden was leading, you know, seven, eight, maybe nine, maybe 10 points nationally. And then in these battleground states, it was maybe a little bit narrower. But there were some polls like the ABC Washington Post poll of the state of Wisconsin showed Biden up by 17 points. In Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, when it was actually like barely a point. Now, we still are having ballots coming in, you know, so some of these 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 totals will change. But the point is, is that these polls underestimated Donald Trump's performance in this election and not just Trump. It underestimated Republicans in the Senate and the House. And people did not expect what we saw at the state legislative level, where Republicans did very well at, you know, voting for candidates at the state legislature level. So many people might have, you know, had expected a blue wave, in part because I think many people who follow politics regularly view Trump as being a very unconventional, um, atypical candidate and president. And I think many of them thought because many people had been offended by things that he had said over the years, that this was going to be kind of a blue wave reaction to Trump. That's not what we saw. The poll margins probably going to end up being about three to four points nationally. And in these battleground states, I mean, these were nail biters. They're pretty close. Um, and that was not what we expected, especially even at the Senate level, you know, Susan Collins, we thought that she was clearly not going to win reelection in the state of Maine, because as you said, Caleb, before the show, like no polls showed her ahead, right? Was there a single poll? Yeah. I don't think any polls showed her leading. Yeah. And then she won, you know, fairly solidly. Um, so the polls, some pollsters are going to argue, they're going to say, look, The polls were largely within the margin of error. Okay, you can say that. But they were all off in the same direction. Those errors were not randomly distributed. So you have to ask why. So, uh, you know, making reference to some of the states that were uh, nail biters here, looking at the Washington Post, Biden by 11,000 votes, Georgia, uh, Biden up 
1.3% by 14,000 votes. Michigan, 148,000 votes. North Carolina, Trump is up 71,000 votes. And Pennsylvania, Biden is up 58,000 votes. That, it, 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 I think, tell me if I'm wrong, you can forgive the, the pollsters being wrong in this case in terms of how particular states are going to go because those margins were in, in many of those same states were so close in 2016. And now the movement of voters from one candidate to another, not that large. Right. Well, if you look at how the. I mean, clearly the magnitude was off, right? The magnitude was off. So if you look at 538, um, I think two. Of the five states that were kind of really, you know, up in the air, um, three they called right in the direction, and two they called wrong in terms of the direction. Right, the the, the electoral map going into election night had predicted that probably Florida and North Carolina would go to Biden, as well as Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, um, and the other blue wall states. So that was kind of the prediction based on the current state of, of polling at the time. Um, and then election night, people were shocked when Florida flips to Trump. So if you were paying attention to the prediction markets, that's when they flip from Biden to Trump because people thought, oh, my gosh, he's going to do it again. Um, and then he's won North Carolina. Um, but then it looks like he's going to lose Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania. These, those races have been called, um, I think, is the time of, as of this recording. Right. Um, but they're close. Um and so it's those margins that are that are surprising. And it would be fine if some of the polls were like, okay, some of sometimes they had Trump overperforming, and some of the polls they had Trump underperforming, or you know, vice versa for Biden. The what was the issue is that they were always consistently kind of underperforming um, for 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 Trump. Okay, so uh, you do polls. Uh, I assume the fact that. Really smart people who do this uh, every day, like you, for a living, getting it consistently wrong, points to a problem in the methodology of polling. I've heard a lot of stuff from Republicans that I know that say, yeah, I just lie to pollsters. <laughs> but I, I have a hard time believing that that is something that is going on in on a large scale. Right. Well... So let's 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 walk through some of the different theories and hypotheses. So um, one that people really went to in 2016 was, you know, with the sampling off in 2016, um, a lot of pollsters as well as APOR's uh, report on what happened in the election, you know, really looked a lot looked closely at uh, the composition of who was polled. Particularly, the concern was that white voters without college degrees were undersampled, especially in those blue wall states of um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, because that's those kind of are, they, they're correlated, they kind of go together in terms of the, how you want to sample the likely voter turnout. Um, and so they thought, okay, this time around, we're just gonna, you know, bump up that segment of the population, because that segment was, you know, more in favor of Trump than some other segments. And so that was why they thought they were off. So they'll just increase the share and they thought they'd solve the problem. So this time when Biden is up by, you know, eight points on average, eight and a half points, they say, look, you know, we've got, we fixed our sampling problems from 2016. So this is probably legit. This is probably realistic. Um, but okay. So that was, but 
that was already solved. So like what happened this time around? So some people will probably go back and say, you know, was there, was sampling off? Um, I think that's probably a less compelling explanation for this time. You know, you could use it in 2016, but can you also use that in 2020? I'm not sure. Another explanation that Nate Silver mentioned recently on his podcast, I think probably could have played some role is that um, the pandemic um, probably impacted who's at home. Um, and, we, you know, pollsters did find that people were a little bit more willing to, to take surveys. So response rates rose. But we do know there was a political asymmetry in who was willing to take this and take, uh, sorry, staying at home and not going out and socializing as much as usual. So Democrats are more likely to be quarantined at home, avoiding outdoor, you know, social activities. And Republicans were more likely, not completely more likely, but just a little bit more likely. Right. Um, so that that's that's a plausible explanation as well. It seems like it's probably more than one. Um, the other is were people lying to the pollsters? You know, this is the, this is I would call the shy Trump voter theory one. Um, were were pollsters calling people on the phone and people just not wanting to admit who were they were voting for? Um, but there's a problem with this theory. It would be more plausible if only Trump underperformed the polls, but Republicans across the board underperformed their polls, right? Even in the Senate, we see the same pattern. So, and, and the House. So like, why would people be lying about voting for Susan Collins? She's not particularly controversial. So that leads us to a, an, a, um, the hypothesis that I'm leaning towards. Um, I call this the shy Trump voter uh, non-response problem. What if people who are voting for Trump aren't even answering the phone, that they're not even clicking the link in the survey to take the survey? Now, this is not always the case. There have been other years where polls were pretty on the mark, um, like 2018 was pretty on the mark. So it's not like this is a consistent problem. It's not like some people are all well There are some people that are systematically less likely to take surveys than others, but there was something added this time around. And so one one way to kind of investigate that is I would, you know, turn your attention to some of the post-election studies on the shy Trump voters. If they were, if there were shy Trump voters, who might that have been? And one way to look at that is you look at the polls and compare them to the exit polls. So the polls are like the surveys that were conducted going into the election and then the exit polls conducted as people were walking out of the election place or people who were contacted who had mailed ballots in. Now People could still lie on the second survey, um, but maybe people would be a little bit more honest um, if they just voted. Okay, so what were the differences between those samples? Trump overperformed among white voters with college degree, particularly those in more affluent suburbs. And that is precisely, as it turns out, the, the types of house seats that flipped from Democratic to Republican when people had thought, oh, you know, those are trending blue. They're going to go bluer this year. So college-educated white Republican voters are seem to be the more likely group to not be tell to either to not take the survey at all or to not want to tell the truth. So I'm more in the like the non-response camp of theories here. And so that means those, I'm worried that these people just weren't even taking the survey. And so then you have to ask, well, why, why are these individuals not taking the surveys? But, you know, let's say, you know, white voters that with, without college degrees were fine, more, more willing to tell pollsters what they think. 
And as it turns out, we actually did some polling, Caleb, this summer, we talked about it, that I think happens to speak directly to this issue. A lot of this seems to add up, at least to my mind, as statistical noise caused in part by a pandemic and uh, the changing of the methods of voting for people. How how, am, how can we say with any confidence how much of an impact that had? I mean, how do you do exit polls in this environment? Right. It's hard to do exit polls in this environment. So what they did this year, the Edison exit poll was they, they, they did what they normally do, you know, placing people outside of ex, out of polling places. And what they do is they'll stop every, you know, let's say 10th person, every 20th person. So it's randomly selected and ask them to take the survey. But as you know, you know, Republicans are more likely to vote in person at the polling booth and Democrats who are more concerned about the pandemic were more likely to mail their ballots. So what Edison did is they worked to contact people who had requested absentee ballots you know, to vote by mail um, or people who had voted early and um, contacted those by f- those individuals by phone. Um, so it was a little complicated, a little bit tricky. So people were a little bit concerned that these exit polls might not be as accurate as other years. Um, but that's how that's how they were working out. Uh, that's how they conducted the exit poll this year. For pollsters going forward, where do you even begin? I mean, the, the it, it you obviously there's a methodological problem that is consistent, it appears, and do, do a lot of these problems evaporate with the disappearance of Donald Trump from ballots in the next, well, at least two years? I think it depends. Um, for those who point to the noise of this election, you know, the pandemic affecting samples and maybe the sampling got off, you have to ask yourself, well, why were they off in the same direction in 2016 with the same candidate at the top of the ticket? How come they got it wrong on Brexit? Do they have anything in common? I would argue yes. Research has shown that attitudes about Trump and especially people who voted for Obama in 2012 but switched their votes to, to Trump in 2016 um, concerns about immigration and globalization played a big role. And a lot of people think that that's what Brexit was about. Um, now, Daniel Hannon has said and has really, you know, emphasized that Brexit was about, uh, you know, regulatory, regulatory control and having sovereignty over your own affairs. But many people thought it also had to do with, with globalization and immigration and not having kind of control over your borders and things like that. So maybe there's something, you know, going on there where voters are afraid to talk about controversial issues about immigration, identity, globalization. What does it mean to be a citizen of a particular country versus like a global citizen? And I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, Caleb, but I think that there is kind of a widening divide between people who work in kind of elite institutions in the media, in entertainment, in universities, people that are talking on television, people writing at the most prestigious um, print journalism outlets like the New York Times, um, they have a particular view of the world. And I would argue have kind of narrowed the boundaries around what people are allowed to talk about, what questions they're allowed to raise when it comes to these sensitive issues for understandable reasons. They're doing that because they're trying to help promote pluralism and peace and getting along. I totally get that. The issue is, is that with a lot of fast paced change associated with globalization, people are going to have some concerns along the way. It's only to be expected. 
But people who have those concerns know, especially those college educated ones that are paying attention, right? They know that they're not allowed to talk about those concerns. And if you're not allowed to talk about it, you're not able to kind of get some resolution. You know, maybe some of the concerns a person has could be wrong, but they're never going to learn that. They're never going to know unless they can talk about it. And people ask them, well, why do you feel that way? You know, what evidence do you have? And kind of do kind of go back and forth, right? Um, and so that brings us back to some of the survey work that we did this summer. Because um, I think people want to know, well, why are college educated white voters maybe not taking surveys systematically um, as much as other types of voters? And in our survey this summer, we found that 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share. And that these concerns were, I would say, I would use the word asymmetrical, meaning that the more conservative you are, the more afraid you are to express yourself, the more liberal you are, the more comfortable you are to express yourself. And I would argue it's because individuals in elite institutions tend to reflect more of a progressive liberal worldview. And so that they kind of set the tone about what questions you're allowed to ask, what conversations you're allowed to have. So this survey was, you know, really surprising. It got a lot of attention, partly because even liberals were also a majority likely to say that they felt like they couldn't share their views. So you've got liberals, moderates, and conservatives all afraid to express themselves, and only kind of progressives, the strong liberal left, feeling like they could actually, you know, talk about politics. Um, but we found one other finding that really popped out too, that really fits with the, the kind of the shy Trump voter thesis. In the survey, we asked people if they were concerned about losing their job or missing out on job opportunities if their political views became known. Of all Americans, we found about a third were afraid of getting fired or missing out on you know that job promotion, things like that, if people found out their political views. This isn't even about like broadcasting them from the rooftops. This is just like if people discovered. Um, but we found a systematic difference with Republicans by educational attainment. So in contrast, for Democrats, you know, if, if you're a Democrat with a high school degree or less, or you're a Democrat with a postgrad degree, you are about equally likely to say that you were worried about getting fired for your political views. Republicans that would um, have a high school degree or a little bit of college looked like Democrats, about a quarter were worried about getting fired. But Republicans that went to college, 40%. Republicans that went to grad school, this is like law school, getting a PhD, going to medical school. 60% were afraid of getting fired because of their political views. So these are voters that, one, are afraid to share their views, uh, are much more likely to live in suburbs. Yes. <laughs> and um, do not take surveys. <laughs> well, I think that they do take surveys. Ordinarily, right? Because this is not a consistent problem. It's not like every single year we have this problem. We have this problem when certain issues kind of are salient and they feel like, you know, maybe they don't like Donald Trump, but they were so upset about what happened over the summer with regards to the, the, the kind of the violent aspects of the protests that occurred. Um, you know, the tearing down of statues, George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, all this stuff. They, you know, maybe they were reacting to something like that, or maybe they don't want to defund the police and are upset they weren't allowed to. They felt like they couldn't say that. 
And so maybe, you know, they're voting for Trump, but they're really voting against those other things. But they don't want to tell anyone because they recognize that Trump is such a controversial figure. They they have witnessed or they've read in the news how people have allegedly been fired because they uh, publicly supported Trump in a social media platform. You know, a student that almost had her acceptance to a university rescinded because she had an Instagram photo with a Trump sign in the background. So I think that college educated Republicans, you know, they're more likely to be reading the news, paying attention. They went to a university, so they kind of know what the zeitgeist is. And they know that certain political views that they may have are not acceptable and that they will be met with severe economic punishment. So they think, well, what's the upside to taking a survey? Think about it. You know, even for you, if you were to take a survey, there's a little bit of a cost to your time. Maybe you could do something else that's more interesting. Very little upside for you taking a survey individually. Now, add on top of that, what if it got out? What if your answers somehow got linked back to you? Even if you're not sure how, why bother? You have better things to do. So that's my concern is what if that's what's happening in these types of races? And this phenomenon may be more likely to occur in elections like Brexit or elections that feature a candidate like Trump in which these controversial issues are the salient ones that are framing and shaping what the election is about. And for a certain group of people, identifying yourself as being supportive of either a particularly firebrand candidate or a particular polarizing idea, it's just best not to say anything. Yeah. Little upside, potential downside. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.